Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah. We've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah. This is our Rebuild teaching series, and we're going to talk about impossibilities this morning. Nehemiah has the impossible task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem with a motley crew. And, uh, and so my question for you this morning is, um, how do you face impossibilities? When the odds are against you, how do you deal with that? That's a good answer. Yeah, pray hard. Eat chocolate. Eat chocolate. Anybody eat chocolate when it gets rough out there, okay? That's not, a, that's not too bad, yeah. Hopefully you do more than just eat chocolate, but, but that's our tendency. We, we tend to medicate. We tend to look for a diversion of some sort rather than to face the issues at hand. Um, what do you do when the odds are against you? How do you face impossibilities? Let me just share with you just from, uh, from my own experience of dealing with impossibilities my, uh, my dad's alcoholism was an impossibility, and God set him free. And he's sitting right back there. I mean, my sister's cancer was an impossibility, and uh, God healed her completely. I mean, that was just... And I've got a whole list of this, so keep your hands going because, I mean, I was thinking my marriage was an impossibility. <laughs> I didn't finish. And my marriage has never been better. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be up here today if it wasn't for the grace of God. We just, we just almost, almost crashed and burned. Multiple times, but one time in particular, about seven years into our marriage, it was just, it was an ugly, ugly, ugly situation. My getting on the fire department was an impossibility, and God opened wide the door. Uh, In the history of Desert Breeze, we have faced impossibilities uh, after impossibilities. A number of times for us, it would be questionable whether we could even go on. And yet, to this very day, we have never been stronger and healthier as a church by God's grace, by God's grace. So, um, here's what I'm wanting you to understand as as we talk about impossibilities. And here's Nehemiah's facing this impossible task of rebuilding. And they've attempted it two times in the last 90 years, unsuccessful. And now he's there with this group of people that they're going to make an effort at rebuilding. And this is what I want us to understand is that there is no problem that can't be overcome or addiction that can't be broken or past hurt that can't be healed. I've got a couple verses there on your notes. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. it says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. In fact, let's read that last phrase together and aloud. You guys ready? One, two, three. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Luke one thirty-seven. So that's Old Testament. Is that true in the New Testament? Absolutely. Luke one thirty-seven. For nothing will be impossible with God. Let's, let's say that together. You guys ready? One, two, three. For nothing will be impossible with God. So let me ask you this. What hurts, habits, or hang-ups have you just felt like throwing in the towel on? Just like, ah, oh, I'm never going to get over this. I can never get through this issue. What family issues or financial issues or marriage issues or parenting issues or health issues or emotional issues you just feel like you can't get through. There's a song I grew up uh, in church singing, and it goes like this. Got any rivers you think are incrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? You guys know how the song goes? 
God does what? He specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. That's where we're headed with our study this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll work through our text and then unpack these notes. Even as it says, God, in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. Father, we are desperate to know, not just in our head, but deep in our heart, that no, uh, no life is too lost, no soul too shattered, no heart too wounded, no circumstance too chaotic for the great power and outstretched arm of your amazing grace. So we pray this morning, fortify our faith, heal us by your hope. May we be lost in your love as we study your word for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, take a look at this text. This is, when I looked at the text, if, if you read the text this last week, you probably looked at it and said, this is an impossible ta- uh, text. Because it is. Anybody take a, a sneak peek at the text and kind of know where we were headed? You're going, how is he going to interpret this? And, uh, and I looked at it, it was pretty impossible. And even uh, the commentators, there are commentators out there that just went right through this chapter. They just skipped over it. And I said, I am not going to skip over this chapter. And because I believe, and, and not to say that those guys didn't believe this too, but I believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God is fully equipped for every good work, even texts like this that are tough. So I would encourage you to continue, you know, work through those tough texts. We're going to hop, skip, and jump through this one. And, uh, and some, of the, some of the names are really hard, so excuse me as I kind of work through some of these names. But um, uh, let's, let's go after this. And here's where we're headed with this study. So to face impossibilities, there's three things we need to remember we're going to draw from this text and uh, remember about God. So here, let me, let me start... And I'm going to read through, and as you can see, I've got it kind of split up here, verses 1 through 5, 8, 13, 15, 27 through 29. And so they're attempting to build the wall. This is how he's kind of organizing it. You're going to hear all these different names, and there's a reason for all these names in there. It's in God's Word. God intended for us to to read through this and have an understanding of it. So starting in chapter 3, verse 1, then Eliashib, the high priest rose up. Now, I'm just going to probably start. Once I pick up pace, I'm going to just race through those. So I might even just say the first initial of that. But don't get hung up on all the names, especially since I can't pronounce them. Just, just try to understand there's some key phrase that will stand out here. So the high priest rose up with his brothers and the priest, and they built the sheep gate. Now, here's a key word. They consecrated it and set its doors, and then once again you see the word again, they consecrated it, so that means to be set apart, to be made holy. They're doing this as unto God, really important, especially as we start this chapter. So they consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him, that's another key phrase, you're going to see that phrase over and over again, and next to him, and next to him, and next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Emery, built. Verse 3, the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired, and next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, Meshezabel, repaired, and next to them, Zodok, the son of Baana, repaired, and next to them, so you see the repeated phrase, next to them, the Tik. Koites repaired, but their nobles, now this is interesting, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So it's interesting. So there was a group within this, and you'll notice that Nehemiah doesn't spend much time on the people that are unwilling to do anything. These guys are just, ah, let somebody else do it. I, we don't, we're not going to stoop down and do that. We're not going to build a wall. 
We're not going to get in. Basically, they're saying, we're not going to get involved in ministry. We're not going to help out with the children's church. We're not going to give to this church. We're just going to show up. We're just going to be consumers. That's really what it's saying there. These guys were just consumers. And uh, let's jump to verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, Uh, repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Now jump to verse 13. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars and repaired a thousand cubics of the wall as far as the dung gate. We're going to talk about these different gates too. They're quite interesting. They do apply. Jump to verse 15. And Shulam, the son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, prepared, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Now jump all the way to verse 27. That was a pretty big jump there, wasn't it? Okay. After him, the the Tikoites, those are those guys mentioned earlier, they're jumping in and having to do the work that these others refuse to do. And that's what they're doing here. Repaired another section opposite the great uh, projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. That's another key phrase, opposite his own house. You'll see that phrase over and over again opposite his own house or right in the same area of his own house because Nehemiah is being very strategic in the parts that these guys are covering. After them, Zodak, the son of Imar, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. And then as you work the rest of the way down, verse 32 basically says that... Um, the goldsmiths and the merchants were working together, and that's kind of how the chapter ends. And this is God's word to us this morning. And so you're saying, what in the world? That is an impossible chapter. How are you going to apply this? Well, as I prayed about it and thought about it, um, this is what I felt that God spoke to me in regards to this. And, and this is an impossible task that they're facing. And he's kind of organizing and they're, they're making an attempt at it. So when we face impossibilities, how do we face those? How do we deal with those? I think there's three things that we can learn from this. To face impossibilities, remember God is working for us, working in us, and then working through us. Let's talk about all three of those. We'll unpack each one of those. And when I say to face impossibilities, remember God is, this remember that I'm saying, it's got to be more than just a, a head knowledge. It's a heart experience. So it's heart experience based on objective truth. If you're going to face difficulties, by the way, everybody here is going to face impossibilities. I know that... Uh, if, you, if you've ever gone on an airplane ride and they go through all the, the first time you've ever done that, you really pay attention to when they go through all the instructions on where, where the oxygen mask dropped from and the exits and how to fasten the seat belt and all that. And then after you've done it a few times, it's like, I'm not paying attention until you know that your plane is going to crash. And you're going, where's that oxygen mask now again? You know, it's kind of like, ah. And so you might not ever be in a plane crash. You will you will face an impossibility. You will face difficulties in your life. So this might be just academic for you. I know that there are people in our fellowship today, this is not academic. They're going through impossibilities. But if it's just academic, be prepared. Allow this to build some equity into your life so that you can face the difficulties in your life. And then you can not only get through that, then you can help others in their difficulties. So here's the first one. To face impossibilities, remember God is working for us. This chapter is about community. It's all about community. Nehemiah's not building this by himself. He's rallying a group of people to build this. So that's why I put God is working for us. I said us together in, the, in community. I could have said for you, and indeed he is. But it's going to work best in the sense of community as a, a local church family like Desert Breeze. So God is working for us. And how do I know that? Well, we already know that in the first two chapters. First two chapters, he's already made very clear, for instance, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5, that God is 
God is a covenant God. He loves us. He's pursuing us. Verse 9 of that same chapter talks about the same thing, that no matter how far we've been scattered, he's going to bring us back. He loves us. Chapter 2, verse 8, verse 18 and 20 talks about God's hand being upon us. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is working for us. He's working for you. What does that mean? I've taught you this before. You need to memorize this. You need to know this. Because not only will it help you to navigate the difficulties, but you can help others with this. This is a truth that needs to not just be uh, head knowledge, but heart experience. The three things are, God is working for us, and I get this from uh, Romans 8, 28 through 32, just as my cross-reference, to say, okay, so we know that God is working, and he's working for us. Nehemiah would have never made it here to start rebuilding. So what does that mean? My bad things will work out for my good. And you've heard this. My truly good things can never be taken from me, and the best is yet to come. Let's go through each one of those really quickly. So first of all, my bad things will work out for my good. Do you know what that means? It means basically, and let me give you the cross-reference for that, Romans 8.28. How many have ever memorized or know what I'm talking about when I say Romans 8.28? There's another one that goes along with that. It's Genesis 50.20, and it's another great one. And I always tell people you need to have a 50.20 perspective. And that's when Joseph, when he was facing his perpetrators, and he looked them in the eyes and he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Powerful. Powerful example of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 basically says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So that, does that include the bad things? Yeah, that's what he says. He's saying all things, bad things. How about the good things? Yeah, that includes the good things. Does it include the ugly things in my life? Absolutely all things. All things. It doesn't mean that individually those things aren't bad, good, and ugly, but it means that God puts those together as my wife when she, you know, she's baking cookies or her sweet rolls. The ingredients by themselves are some bland, some sweet, some ugh. But when he blends it together, he brings about, she brings about good. God brings about good in our lives and for his glory. That's what he's talking about here. My good things will work out for my good. Here's the next thing. My truly good things can never be taken from me. That's Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he knows you. He knows exactly what you're going through. He's with you in that. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the first among many brothers. So God's working, and the truly good things can never be taken from me. What are the truly good things that can never be taken from me? Eternal life? Absolutely. How about what's the best thing that we have in the Christian life? Absolutely best thing. God, our relationship with him. In fact, the more you begin to understand who Jesus is, Jesus is the treasure worth leaving everything for. In fact, the more you get these glimpses of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, this is, this is what your attitude will be as you go through difficulties, is that there's no pain, no difficulty, no problem, too much to endure if it increases your experience of his love and grace in your life. That might sound a little foreign to you, a little crazy, but, but it, there's no difficulty too too much for you to endure if it brings you a greater experience of him, which can never be taken from you, your relationship with God. And then the best things are yet to come. Romans 8.30 answers that for us. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's talking about glorification. The best is yet to come. Hey, what's the worst that can happen to me? Die? No, that's the best. I go to be with him glorification. So you got justification, sanctification, glorification. I'm with him. Now Romans 8, 31 through 32, you guys know this. I repeat it. I say it a lot. I quote it a lot. You guys know it. If God is for us, who can, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Listen, he took care of your worst problem. You know what your worst problem was? Being eternally separated from the father. So he bridged the gap with his life. And the Bible's saying, if he took care of that problem, he's going to take care of all of your other problems. 
Why are you sweating the minor problems? Your bigger problem's been dealt with. And so he's saying, hey, if I took care of that for you, I'll take care of everything else. I've got you covered. I love you. So, so what are we talking about when we, when we read in Nehemiah that the hand of God was on him? Well, this is what we mean. Bad things will work out for my good. My truly good things can never be taken from me. His presence in my life. And the best things are yet to come. So here's what I would encourage you to do. So as you face impossibilities, ask boldly. And you ask until your dying breath because that honors God. But you surrender completely to whatever he may bring your way. Sometimes God calms the storm and sometimes he calms his child in the storm. But either way, you can always trust his loving, wise control of your life. Just because God doesn't answer your prayer the way you think he should doesn't mean that he is any less loving, wise, and in control. God is at work in the worst of times doing a thousand things no one can see but him for our good and his glory. The will of God is what you want, with what, is what you would want if you knew everything God knew. He is closer than you think cares more than you could ever know, and is active in your life whether you see him or not. That's, that's a fact. That's what we learn from that. So to face, to face impossibilities, remember God is working for us. Whether you can see him or not, it doesn't matter. The Bible says he is. We live by faith and not by what? By sight, yeah. Fourth chapter of Second Corinthians makes that very clear. So that's the first part of that. So working for us. Here's the next one. He's working in us. So he's working for us, kind of behind the scenes. But he's also working in us. The rebuilding of this broken city is a picture of the rebuilding of the broken lives of the nation of Israel. So it's just a... It's a visual aid for them to see this is how your lives are. And so us putting the city back together, bringing them back to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, is a picture, Old Testament picture of a New Testament principle of us living life to its fullest in Jesus Christ. And so God is working in us. And um, you guys know this, that God's more concerned with your character than your comfort. And he's more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Would you guys agree with that? So therefore, he will always, he will always sacrifice the temporal. He will always sacrifice your temporal for the sake of the eternal, your eternal good. And I don't, I don't fully understand all of what's going on. A lot of that we won't know until we come face to face with him. But I do understand that he is loving, wise, and in control. And you can trust that in him. You can put your trust in him. He gave his life for you. So you always go back to the cross. The measure of his compassion for you is not your circumstances. It's the cross. Okay? Always remember that. You always go back to the cross. He did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him freely give us all things? So it's not your circumstances that determines his love. It's the cross, so you know that he's working regardless of what's going down in your life. So working in us, what does that mean? This means that as we begin to look at our own brokenness and as God puts our lives back together again, we work from, not for, our identity. That's what I talked about last week. So you work from. There might need to be a comma somewhere. I'm not really good with, with English, and, and I've kind of butchered it a lot. So anyway, work from, not for your identity. Remember those two uh, words, consecrated, verse 1? They consecrated. They consecrated twice. And then this is a bit subtle. This wasn't in the ESV, if you're studying from an ESV. It was actually in uh, NIV and NAS, but in verse 20, if you still have your Bibles open, it says that he zealously repaired. So he zealously repaired. So you get this idea that here's the, uh, a group that, that consecrates. They said, God, this is for you, and this guy is zealously repairing the wall. This is really giving us a beautiful picture that any work that needs to be done on us as we face impossibilities, and maybe it's the impossibility of our, our getting over certain hurts or habits or hang-ups, as I said, that we work from, not for our identity. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, so here's what you need to understand. Your work, when you go to work tomorrow, 
You're working in your marriage relationship. You're working in your finances to get yourself out of debt if that's where you're headed or what you're trying to do or whatever it is. You're never to work for your identity. You should never be motivated because somehow you're going to win points with God. You have all the points you need with God already through the cross of Jesus Christ. So you're not trying to earn his, his presence and his approval. You have his presence and approval. You have it. It's not based on your performance. And you can't screw that up. There's nothing that you can do to mess that up. You have it. Yeah, but, but what, if I, what if I continue in sin? Well, why would you want to continue in sin? You're going to repent because, why? Because you miss him, because you love him, because you want to honor him. Not like you're earning anything. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. You have everything you need. Um, you have everything in, in him to face any kind of circumstance with unbelievable, unspeakable, and glorious joy. Now, we don't always live there because we forget what we have in him. We're not living in the reality of that. So you have everything that you need in him. And so when you, when you get involved in ministry, when you're working on your marriage relationship, when you're doing any of these things, or you're trying to parent, be a good parent, you're not operating out of a deficit. Man, I've got to make these kids mine because they're really making me look bad. And oh, wait, 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 They can't make you look bad because you're in Jesus. Your identity is in him. You have his presence and approval. See, that's hard for us to understand because we're... Because we're so performance-oriented. And so that's how we are to do our work. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you had an immediate status change. Just like that. Boom. Just like that. Wow. You put your faith in Jesus. You went from object of God's wrath, enemy of God, to child of God. Now, if I were to say, are you a believer? You ought to be able to say, yeah, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You shouldn't be saying, well, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I, I hope so. It's kind of like being pregnant. Either you are or you aren't, okay? It is. You're either in him or you're not in him. You're not kind of, I'm kind of in him. and I. No, 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 no. Immediate status change. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. And it's totally undeserving, way beyond what you could ever dream or imagine. That's you because you put your faith in Jesus. You responded to his call and his invitation into this relationship with him. That's crazy. I mean, if the gospel message isn't the most amazing message you've ever heard, then you haven't heard it. I mean, you've heard me say that before. I mean, it's just like, whoa. Oh, my goodness. You have everything you need in him right now, this morning. So spiritual disciplines are really about us, you know, making access, you know, getting access to what he has because we, we tend to not really believe that. It's unbelief that keeps us from really experiencing that. So work from, not for your identity. Uh, take ownership of your part in the rebuilding. That's the next thing. Take ownership of your part in the rebuilding. You know what? Let me, I'm going to share this story real quick because I think it goes along with this, that first one. Because I don't think that we oftentimes really live in the reality of all that God has for us. Interesting story. And it's... Uh, it's about a, a southern plantation owner who left a $50,000 inheritance, perhaps equivalent to a half a million dollars today, to a former slave who'd served him faithfully all of his life. The estate's lawyer duly notified the old man and told him the money was deposited at a local bank. Weeks went by, and the former slave never called for any of his inheritance. Finally, the banker called him in and told him about, uh, again, he had $50,000 available to draw on at any time. Sir, the old man replied, do you think I can have 50 cents to buy a, a sack of cornmeal? The writer here goes on and says, the story illustrates the plight of many Christians today. Paul wrote of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8, referring not to financial wealth, but to the glorious truths of the gospel. It's as if each of us has $50,000 available in the gospel, yet most of us are hoping we can squeeze out 50 cents worth we don't understand the riches of the gospel any more than the former slave understood his inheritance. That's good, huh? So we don't live in the reality. So, we're, so we have the identity. Our identity is set in Jesus. And so, so that's how we, we do our work out of that. And then the next thing is we take ownership. So this is part of working in us. We take ownership of, of our part in the rebuilding. 
In verses 10, 23, 28, 29, and 30, there's this uh, phrase that says, opposite his own house or by his own house. Our tendency is, and our culture kind of preaches this a little bit, is that we think that we make excuses for why we are the way we are. I messed up because, you know, my parents, how they treated me growing up. And I'm not minimizing that. I'm not saying that that can't influence you. That certainly can. Or we make excuses for not, not just our conditioning, but our, our circumstances. Well, look, at I've faced some really hard circumstances. Or we blame our chromosomes, you know, our DNA. I'm, it's just the way I am. And uh, all of those can influence, but they don't control. And our tendency in our society today is that we tend to nurse, curse, and rehearse all of that. Because we think that it's the circumstances, conditioning, or our chromosomes that has made us the way we are. That's not true. It's not, it's not your circumstances that have made you the way you are. It's your evaluation of those circumstances that has made you the way you are. It's your perspective. It's how you look, and, and that's the reason why Romans 8, 28, and the first part of this is so important that God's working for you. If you have that perspective, you can face anything. You can have the 50-20 perspective that you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God can take the bad. He's going to work it for my good. So if you face your circumstances with that, that paradigm, so to speak, or that biblical worldview, it makes all the difference. So it's not, it's not the events of your life that determine how you think, feel, and respond. It's your evaluation of the events of life that determine how you think, feel, and respond. You guys tracking with me? Yeah, it's just, and so, so what God is doing, so this is about taking ownership. And that's why it says in Philippians three twelve through 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So he gives you the desire and he gives you the ability to get out of a mess that you're currently in. So you begin to rely on him and he will help you to navigate through that. So what you're learning to do is you're learning to apply the, the truth and love of God to your heart, specific to where your heart is most restless or where you're struggling the most. A um, number of years ago when I went through the apprenticeship with Local 469, Plumbers, Pipefitters, Local Union, I was uh, a welder and was learning pipe fitting trade. And um, my dad is a plumber and he got me in on that. And I was going through the apprenticeship. It was like a four-year, five-year apprenticeship class. And so when Nancy and I had moved back to Phoenix, I started the apprenticeship up in St. John's, Arizona, but moved back to Phoenix, taking night classes here which was part of that whole process. And uh, I had a teacher that was just uh, emotionally and verbally abusive. And I had this major anxiety every time I would go into that class. It's like I didn't even want to face this guy because he'd, he'd pick people out and pick on them in front of the whole class and the other class members would kind of dogpile them verbally. And it was really harsh. I think it was the early days of the possibility of working into some sort of an anxiety attack because it was just overwhelmed with anxiety as I would come into that class. And I remember, and I was newly married. I think my wife was pregnant or we'd already had our first child. And I thought to myself, wait, 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 wait. I'm not going to let this anxiety get the best of me. I don't care what goes down or what happens in that room. There's no reason why I should be intimidated by this guy. I'm a child of God. And I began to take various verses in the scripture um, that helped to kind of reinforce that in my heart. For instance, one was Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? I began to meditate on that and reflect on that days before I would have to face this guy and face this class. And it wasn't, but throughout that semester, God began to use that. As I began to apply the truth and love of God specific to where my heart was most restless, God began to fortify my faith and strengthen me in that. And I began to get lost in his love and who he is and who I was in him became much greater than facing of this antagonistic teacher and, and actually a very abusive teacher. So it's, so it's taking responsibility for your part. So, so, they, so what's happening here is Nehemiah was asking them, you build the section that's closest to your home. And he felt they're going to take responsibility for that. That's all, that's all I'm saying. That's the point that I think that we can apply to our lives. Here's the next one. Divide the work into manageable parts. So you're struggling with issues and uh, you got to, in fact, this, it's what this whole chapter is about as they divide up the work. The word section is found seven times, 
So in this section, they did this section, do this section, section. So if you're, whether you're trying to lose weight or get out of debt or get in shape, you don't attack it all at once. You, you, uh, you turn it into sections. Okay, I'm going to start here. And then once I've kind of accomplished that, that will give me some momentum and I'll feel good about myself and then I'll work from there. That's, that's basically what they're doing here. Um, we, we, on the fire department, it's called, we would sectorize. When we'd come at a fire to fight a fire or a critical incident, they would sectorize. They would say, you group of guys, you take this and you guys do this and then you guys over here do that. And it's the same, same approach with our own lives many times. How many have ever had, you, you've had issues in your life? Everybody here, I'm sure. Or you're lying if you don't answer this one. Uh, but everybody here has had those issues in your life and you're just overwhelmed by it. You just, just throw in the towel. Show of hands, you're just like, I don't even want to try. This house is so dirty, I don't even want to try. You know, it's just like, ah. Or you have a child that messes his pants up and it's so bad, you're just thinking it'd be easier to throw him away and start over and get a new child. Uh, you almost, you just feel like giving up. So that's why divide the work into manageable parts. And we've got to do the same thing in the rebuilding. How many have ever done this? You're going to get in shape, you're all excited, and you go out there and you work out hard like crazy that day, and then you can't even get out of bed the next day. <laughs> and why did you do that? Why, everybody's done that. And I've, I've even heard people go out and they get a personal trainer and they're puking their guts out. And then they never go back. I said, I wouldn't either. If I was puking every time I went out and worked out, I don't work out to where I'm puking. I try not to eat before I work out, but the fact is, is that you're probably pushing yourself too hard, and you might need to work up to that. Does that make sense? I mean, so you work up to that. You don't start off by running a, you know, a, a marathon. The marathon runners don't start off by running marathons, okay? Does that make sense? They like start off by just, hey, I think I'm just going to get out of the straddle lounger this morning. Ooh, that's a good... That's awesome. Let's try that two times today. Oh, okay, I got up two times. <laughs> yeah, you, you, take, you take baby steps. How many have ever seen the movie, uh, What About Bob? You guys have seen that movie? It's an interesting movie, but it's uh, Bill Murray is the, the psych patient, and uh, Richard Dreyfuss is the, uh, is the psy- uh, psychiatrist. And so he tells him he's got a book. He's got a special book. And in that book, it's called Baby Steps. And so he says, here, just take baby steps. And he's just trying to take baby steps just to get out of his office. And it's really kind of funny because he's kind of like, and there's a lot to that, though. It's just taking baby steps. That's what these guys are doing. So, so God's working in my life, and that's what I've got to do. So working in us, work from, not for your identity. Take ownership of your part in rebuilding and divide the work into manageable into manageable parts. Here's what's interesting. Archaeology, um, archaeology tells us that Nehemiah ended up with an eight-foot even, uneven, eight-foot uneven wall. But it got the job done. Beware of perfectionism. If you have kind of an all or nothing, it'll usually be nothing, okay? Um, and so how many perfectionists do we have in the house? okay. Let me read something here real quick just to make sure that we flush you out here this morning. (laughs) Perfectionism. I often put off starting projects because I don't have time to do them perfectly. I mean, I've seen, my wife and I were talking about this. We say, oh, I can't do the full workout, so I won't work out at all. Well, just do five minutes. That's better than nothing. You accumulate that over a couple days. You've done more than nothing. So that's the tendency. I often think I should have done a certain task better than I did. It's a perpetual dissatisfaction. I'm right there, man. I can never achieve it. I just keep pushing the bar higher. I have great plans for the future. Someday I will accomplish amazing things. I expect the best of myself at all times. If I can do something really well, if I can't do something really well, there's no point in doing it at all. Um, I mean, I have an office in, uh, where I work, and sometimes it gets a bit cluttered because I put all my books out. I get overwhelmed with that. I'm like, oh. So I'll put on a headphones, and I used to be a clutter, or not so much anymore. Uh, my wife has helped me with this. <laughs> but I'll put on headphones, I'll listen to something, and I'll just, I'll just kind of section at a time. I'm just going to start right here. Yeah, okay. 
Got that taken care of. Ooh, that wasn't so bad. I got that. Okay. And now I'll do this. And so you start working through there. And before long, I got the thing knocked out. And it's not so overwhelming. I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. And I've struggled with that as I work through. And I can be easily overwhelmed. If I try hard enough, I should be able to excel at anything. Do you, do you kind of think that? You're a perfectionist if you think that. I feel ashamed if I show weakness or foolish behavior. I get upset if I make a mistake. If I do anything that seems just average, I become unhappy. I refuse to be a second-rate person. In my experience, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. Anybody out there like that? Kind of feel like that? Yeah. You're not good at delegating. In my experience, if you want something done right, you have to... Oh, I already said that. Um, I set my standards as high as possible. I am often disappointed with other people's work. I get upset when things don't go as planned. Other people don't understand my desire to do things right. Yeah, but you're killing everybody around you. I mean, I did. It's like it's just so driven. Here's, he says in this article here, it's an interesting article. He says, studies show a linkage between child-rearing practices and adult perfectionism. Children with excessively strict and harsh parents are more likely to become excessively perfectionistic. During childhood, their sense of self-worth was damaged, and they learned to view themselves conditionally. That is, since the child's parents were so strict and demanding, and since they only communicated approval and affection when the child's behavior was perfect, the child learned he could only be loved or have value if he was perfect. And so, I mean, by the way, this affects all of us because we're all performance-oriented. And, and then we based that on the approval of a few folks that we admire. And so that's our tendency. And so we've got to get over that. We've got to divide the work into manageable parts, avoid perfectionism. And uh, it, it says in Exodus, the cross-references I put on there, Exodus 23, 30. Did you know that when he told them to go into the promised land, this is what he said, little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Do you have any idea why he said that, little by little? He says, you're not going to conquer the land all at once, but you're going to little by little. You'll take this section, and then you'll move over here and take that section. It's like spiritual growth. And the reason why he said that is because they'll clear it out and then the wild animals will come in and take it over. And it's very unsafe. And here's the point. The point is is that idols can't be removed, only replaced. And the tendency is I've seen people break the alcohol habit only to replace it with a workout habit or some other idol rather than to replace it with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to get at and we're going to knock out the rest of it. The sins you've committed and the sins that have been committed against you, listen to me, are no match for the grace of God. God is not only working for you, but he's working in you to rebuild, redeem, revive your life. I mean, that's, and, and you need to understand this, too, is that, Christian, if you've, if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, infinite wisdom is guiding you. Perfect love is comforting you. Unlimited power is protecting and strengthening you. Rest in him. Look to him. Trust in him. So that's that, that's that part. Now let's talk about working through us. So working for us, working in us, and now working through us. Rebuilding brokenness is a team effort. None of us is as smart as all of us. Did you notice the list of people in this? Priests, sons, daughters, goldsmiths, perfume makers, rulers, merchants. What is he talking about there? That's a beautiful picture of the, of the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament. I gave you a list of all the different gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Synergy is a word that I learned when I was going through paramedic training, which is an interesting word. There's a synergy that begins to take place as we join together our gifts and our efforts and our money and all that we do as we bring them together. There's a synergy to that. Synergy is the working together of two things to produce a result greater than the sum of their individual effects. Did you know this, that geese can fly 72% further when they are in formation? It's amazing. That's what he's talking about here. But you also notice, I'll bring you back to what I said before in verse 5, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. 
See, the more you understand that your Lord stooped down to serve you, to what degree? Die on a cross for you. You will stoop down for others in honor of your Lord. And because they, were, they refused to do that, the men of Tekoa took up the slack. If you don't do your part, someone will have to do your part for you. God has called you here for a specific reason, to do your part, to be a part of what God is wanting to do here through Desert Breeze. And if you don't do your part, someone else will have to do that part. That's kind of part of it. Rebuilding brokenness is a team effort. Here's the next point. Is that most of my healing has come from helping others and theirs. That's what I found true about my life. Don't wait until you got your act together. It'll never happen this side of eternity. But the part of the healing is going to come as you help others. Here's what I found interesting. In verse 2, 8, 10, 12, 17, and 19, it used the phrase, remember the phrase, next to him. Next to them. That's the next to him or the next to them principle. That's, that phrase is used nine times in that chapter. Let me read to you something from uh, Ecclesiastes. It's been a, just a powerful text for me for many years and just has always stirs up my value for community here at Desert Reese. It says this in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good, a good reward for their toil. For if, for if they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's why we emphasize small groups. You need more than just what you get here on the weekend service. As you connect with other people in small groups, that's, that two are better than one. It creates that synergy. And that's what begins to bring healing unlike you've ever experienced before. Um, there's a song that I grew up singing. It's a wonderful song. I won't, I won't do it because I, I, I won't sing it because I'll wreck it for you. But I'll just give you the words. And it's, uh, the words go like this. To be used of God, to sing, to speak to pray, to be used of God, to show someone the way. How's the rest of that go? I have to sing it to, I long so much to feel the touch of his consuming fire. To be used of God is my desire. There's something that happens when you, when you speak the words of God to people, when you reach out and touch someone, when you love someone. It brings healing to you. Your life is being used to touch someone else's life. I have found unbelievable healing when I get up and teach. This, this nurtures me. This ministers to me more. I know than it does you. It's almost like God said, you're the most troubled kid. I'm going to put you at the front of the class so I can keep my eye on you. You know, it's almost kind of like, you, so, so we're going to have you tell all the rest you know, and make much of me, you know, through your life. And I, I love doing that. But man, it, it ministers to me like you wouldn't believe as I can share my life with others. Um, here's the last one. There is not a more exciting, fulfilling adventure than to be a part of a biblically functioning community that is redeeming, rebuilding people's lives. Now, why would God put this chapter in the Bible? Why would he do that? Because, because, did you notice it's made up of a whole lot of people's names, personal names that I couldn't hardly pronounce, that we all struggle over? But it's because he knows your name. He takes note of your life and your service to others. That's why it's in here. I mean, it's telling us, hey, God, God knows your service. God knows your work. God knows when you reach out to others. Hebrews 6.10, it says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, see when you give your hard-earned money through Desert Breeze, when you... When you give your valuable time, when you give your God-given talents, skills, and gifts back to God through Desert Breeze, we together are redeeming and rebuilding and reviving lives for all eternity. And your Father in heaven takes note of that and will reward you accordingly. There's amazing reward in that. So, here we are. 
We're getting ready to make the biggest and the most strategic move in the history of Desert Breeze. And we're, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty stoked about it. I'm pretty excited. It's been 20 years in the making. And, and at Desert Breeze, you guys know this, we've never been about building monuments, but more about building ministry. And though we're excited about building out a brand new venue, it's going to look pretty slick too. It's amazing the people that are stepping up and donating and giving and I mean, it's just, it's wonderful as, as we see this come together. It's just all by God's grace and for his glory. And, uh, and I love it. And we're excited about building out a, a brand new venue, it's, but it's only to help better facilitate ministry as we continue to build into people's lives, homes, and our community. Thank you for your participation. Thank you for your involvement. I think that's what I, I learned from this. I mean, this is about community, everybody working together so that we can see more people come to faith in Jesus and have their lives rebuilt, redeemed, revived in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Here's my prayer. I think it's on your notes. It's at the bottom of your notes. But stand and let me read this prayer and then give you a blessing on the way out. By the way, next week... You, you might have thought, okay, okay, looks like things are really headed in a good, good direction. They're, they're building the wall. <laughs> they're going to get it done. Next week, we're going to talk about opposition. So come back next week because how do you deal with opposition? How do you deal with the critics in your life? How do you deal with the antagonistic bosses and the people that, that tend to inhibit your, your making progress in Jesus? We'll talk about that next week. Here's our prayer. Lord, help us to do great things as though they were little since we do them with your power and little things as though they were great since we do them in your name. That's a prayer by Blaise Pascal. So here's my blessing to you. As we, as you, face the impossibilities of life, may you remember, may the objective, uh, may the objective truth be a heart experience in your life. May you remember that he is working for you. He is working in you, and he will work through you for the redeeming, rebuilding, and the reviving of people's lives that desperately need it all around us for his glory, our amazing satisfaction in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.